Are you guys ready up there? Alright. Alright, quiet on the set. So thank you very much for joining me today. I'm Marisa Roy. I'm a filmmaker and a board member of Women in Film and Television Ireland. And welcome to our talk with Nina Menkes, director of Brainwashed, Sex, Camera, Power, which will be screening as part of the Cary International Film Festival on October 19th, Thursday. Thank you for joining us, Nina. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I wanted to give a, an, your introduction and sort of talk about um, the ideas your your film brings to light. See if we have any questions from the audience, and then bring into uh, the final part a discussion of how we dismantle the internalized sexist lens that affects us as women creatives and crafters. I think that's particularly important for our members and for our, our board as well to, to be considering that is something that I'm definitely thinking about. Um, and just a description of your film. Your latest film is Brainwashed, Sex Camera Power, which takes uh, sheds light on the movie making's fatal and sexist cinematic design and techniques that contribute to a pervasive environment of sexual harassment and assault and enculturating employment discrimination against women, especially in the film industry. My mother was sort of in the living room when I was watching your film again last night and she, so, so she could hear the sounds coming from my laptop and she said, is that a scary movie? And I said, <laughs> not, in the, not in the traditional horror film sense, it's scarier uh, in many ways. And <laughs> um, there's a connection that you draw, uh, uh, this triangle, uh, where on the left side of, of the point, the left point is the visual language of cinema. And can you talk about the other two points for me and this connection you've that you've built uh, and you've talked about with in the film? Yes, um, the uh, the triangle, uh, which is kind of the basic thesis or concept of the film, is that the visual language of cinema, and by that, uh, what we mean is, <clears throat> you know, not not the you know, not the script, not the dialogue, not the characters, but the actual form of the visual shots, the way shots are composed and put together. Um, that visual language very much is complicit and supports <clears throat> in a kind of meta language way, because it's something most people don't notice consciously, um, the twin epidemics of sexual assault, sexual abuse that really, you know, exploded onto the world's consciousness with the Me Too movement and severe employment discrimination against women, uh, which, you know, we just had a woman who won the Nobel Prize for her work on the gender gap in uh, pay. And, um, you know, what you had in Hollywood before the Maria Geis action of 2015, which, you know, we can get into in a bit, but, um, you know, before the U.S. government basically went into um, 
very serious settlement talks with the studios about their severe sex discrimination. That was mm -hmm. 2015. Mm -hmm. Before that, there wasn't even a gender pay gap. There was just like no women, you know, uh, in the in the landscape of a uh, very very few, let's say, in the uh, landscape of the Hollywood filmmaking machine. And so the um, these these two points, how does how does that visual language that we've all normalized and taken to just be the way that you make movies, the way you shoot movies, how does that reinforce these these um, ways to oppress and discriminate against women? Yeah. And you've lived you've lived in Los Angeles, which is sort of the uh, the the center for for the movie industry for the United States. I would argue for for the globe and yes you went to film school yes and you were empowered to create films you were educated to create films and did you did you see this wall did you see this gap when did it be when were your eyes open to this uh enculturation and this block this ceiling of where you could move with your films with your creativity um well i felt i felt it pretty pretty young i you know like you said i went to film school i went to the ucla film school and uh in the 80s i and i made at film school it was uh, the, when i went there it was kind of very much a free school you know they taught you basic camera basic editing and then it was like go do your thing, um, which was great for me because I had a lot of ideas and I knew what I wanted to do. Um, and I made a, a feature film on 16 millimeter for $5,000 um, called, uh, which was a student loan, <laughs> the 5,000. And um, I, um, yeah, so that film <clears throat> is called Magdalena Viraga. There's a clip of it in Brainwash. It's about a prostitute, a sex worker who hates her work. And um, it, it this film included nine scenes, nine sex scenes um, where the where the sex worker is having sex with a John. And the scenes are are long and the camera stayed only on her face. And um, it was a very provocative work and uh, very radical for the time. Um, and it got a lot of attention. It won a Los Angeles Film Critics Award. It went to 40 film festivals worldwide, uh, Toronto, but uh, no distributor bought the film. Um, no phone calls from agents in Hollywood saying, hey, what's your next, next project? Um, it, it was like, I realized, so I realized very young that if you're gonna go against the system, you know, you're up against it. And I mean, there is no way in hell that a male director um, who had that kind of a claim at a very young age out of film school wouldn't have been snatched up by, you know, by the whole Hollywood apparatus. And um, 
the reason for not being snatched up was both every point on the triangle. Number one, severe discrimination against women. Even if you're not doing confrontational work, women who were doing very conventional work were also severely discriminated against. Okay. But so just being a woman and secondly, um, creating images that confronted the cinematic law of the way that women are supposed to be photographed on screen. Yeah. Um, and so I, I felt it very early on and uh, I didn't stop feeling it. I st still feel it today. There Although we have we have made a little progress. Let's 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 be sure. take a moment for yes. optimism. Yes, yeah, and 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 I saw you know the films that that you showed towards the end. They give that optimism to us, right? The 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 uh, your own work as well. Um, I would like to to give your short bio um, because I think it, uh, I, I'd be remiss to to look at your your career so far. Um, you're a, a cinematic pioneer, one of America's most important independent filmmakers. Your award-winning feature films have shown widely at major international film festivals, including Sundance, the Berlinale, ITFA, BFI London, Cannes, and Locarno. Dennis Lim, writing in the New York Times, described her as a cinematic sorceress she is a Guggenheim and Fulbright Fellow and directing member of the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences. I'm talking to Nina Menkes. She is the director of Brainwashed, Sex Camera Power. Talk to me yeah. about, uh, oh, I'm getting off topic because, I, I, well, yeah. Let me stay with the film. I, I wanted to talk to you about the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences because this would be the, the body that would help dismantle this lens that right yeah uh, and i have seen moves to to dismantle that yes um but i'd like to go into your film into brainwashed and and look at i really appreciate um i, I appreciate it in so many levels personally and, and how i how <laughs> i'm gonna cry um the years of taking in these visuals that i love i love i love i love right? I've dedicated my life to film. We've dedicated our lives to film. And I operate, I think, I use the male lens in everything, everything. And in the everyday, as you've said, right? I realize in the way I, I gaze, I gaze at men, I gaze at people, and how I expect to, that I'm not supposed to look and I am to allow them to gaze at me. That is the personal level. The professional level is hitting that glass ceiling, not being even offered, not even thinking I'm worthy of, of asking to, or of being in those positions, in that place, in that role. And then creatively, I'm coming up with that right now in terms of making my own documentaries about my own communities. And what are the ways that I'm looking at creating, am I creating it for me? I'm starting to dismantle that, starting to create for myself and for my community and using my own lens. And that's scary because I don't know what that lens is. Um, and what I appreciate in your film is the different people that you bring in to the documentary from Julie Dash, Charlene Yee, Roseanne Arquette, uh, 
Can you talk about who you decided to bring into, into the film and why? Well, when we started, um, well, first of all, I should say thank you for that um, statement um, about the movie. It, it really, it, it means so much to me and to the whole team that, that the film is having an impact. Um, and uh, I thank you for, for sharing that. Um, as as far as the interviewees, uh, when when we started putting the film together, I mean, the film was based on a lecture actually that I was uh, originally gave to my students, and then it kind of expanded, and I gave it in film festivals around the world, and then it turned into a this film. Um, so when we started, we had <clears throat> the lecture, which was me. <laughs> talking about the stuff and you know 12 film clips and then it was like well you know to make this into a feature film we obviously we want to expand so um we expanded the 12 film clips into almost 200 film clips of a-list movies and that was interwoven and then we interwove the the lecture but then we also were like well we you know we want other voices not only my voice and we actually reached out to a large amount of people. Obviously we reached out to the people who are in the film, but we also reached out to a lot of people who are not in the film. And that includes many or almost all of the living directors, the A-list living directors whose clips are included in the film. And that means um, Martin Scorsese, Spike Lee, uh, Sofia Coppola, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like we we did reach out to the representatives of of all of those people. And, you know, it was like, sorry, busy, sorry, busy, busy, sorry, busy. You know, thanks for asking, sorry, busy. So the people who are in the film, as you know, me and the editor sort of woke up one day and went, wow, we have, you know, uh something like 22 women and two non-binary um people. Uh, and that was not by design. I have to say that was not by design. It was by oh, <laughs> the other people saying no, you know, and then we got these amazing people who were, of course, on our list from day one. But um, the people who did say yes and wanted to participate were, you know, primarily women who we're pretty much, you know, on the same page. Um, of course, everyone has their own perspective, but we're we're kind of on the same page with us with with what we were trying to say, you know. And there was there was one review um, that said, you know, Nina Mankus does not provide a opposing argument, but that's because there isn't one. And, you know, and she was like, that's true. You cannot argue with the film on that level because, you know, basically it's sort of, it's like, it's like a legal argument. A friend of mine said, you know, you're like a prosecutor and you're, you're proving your case, you know, you're making a legal argument and, and you win because, because, because you show us all the evidence. <laughs> Uh, yeah. And uh, I, I want to bring you you bring in uh, who you call the original gangster of uh, feminist film theory, Laura Mulvey, 
in there. Yeah. And uh, I love it. I mean, this quote was like the most was what sparked it for her, which was I realized I was watching these movies as a male specter, spectator, specter or spectator would be <laughs> right. Right. It's, it's both. Um, and uh, so let's get into to the idea of well, sorry. First of all, I wanted to ask because you were bringing up the people who you've re- you invited to be part of the documentary to yeah. talk to them about their shot designs, the way they have decided to film women, uh, uh, and have has anyone come up to you now that the film that the documentary is done and given comment? And what is that? Well, in it, I mean, there's been a lot of comment. Uh, I'm not sure what you mean, like in what the sense. Filmmakers, from the A-list filmmakers, from any of the. Oh, the yeah. You know, I mean, I have to say the silence has been deafening. Wow. Nothing. Yeah. 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 It's 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 interesting because, um, you know, although the film has gotten a lot of attention, um, you know, it went to all the big A-list film festivals and there was tons of reviews, you know, normally when you, when you go to Sundance, I mean, I've had four films there and you're a little independent filmmaker, you know, maybe you get five articles, six, seven articles. I mean, then you're really happy, you know, yeah. if you get that. Um, we got like 60 articles out of Sundance, you know, I mean, it was like, there was the film got tons of attention not all of it was good we were also attacked um and it went to all the major film festivals you know there was a huge article in the washington post and you know it was like it the the film was out there um there were a bunch of female film directors just to to show you the the pushback there are a bunch of female film directors at the Sundance Film Festival who wanted to bring the film to the DGA, the Directors Guild of America, which is on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles, you know, like ground zero of the male gaze. They wanted to bring it there and do like an event called Reclaiming the Gaze and Show Brainwashed. And the DGA pushed back. They didn't want to show the film. And we we heard from um you know, back channels that the reason that was that was given was, you know, we don't want to offend our members in their home. Okay. <laughs> so that what that shows you where the the Hollywood, you know, they're like people are not willing to attack or in the film really when you see it, I mean it's not I don't attack these directors. I I admire their work, but I'm just pointing something out, you know, and um, I think that's clear in the film that it's not uh, so much an attack as an illumination, hopefully. And um, yet there's, you know, there was a lot of a lot of silence from from those people. And in fact, the distributor, the U.S. distributor, um, Tina Lorber distributed the film in North America said, you know, I would love if Spike Lee or Sophia Coppola or one of these people came out on Twitter and said, I guess it's not called Twitter anymore, but you know what I mean? Like on social media and said like, you know, this film, I hate it. It's trash or whatever. And then that of course would generate controversy and more, more, more visibility. So they really, 
did the thing that would hurt us the most, which is say nothing. And I, I mean, the most, the most, uh, the most extreme case, I think for me personally was that, uh, some of my early feature films have been restored by the Film Foundation in New York City. Now, the Film Foundation in New York City is is Martin Scorsese. You know, it's his thing. And I know the executive director of the Film Foundation because they restored uh, my early films, and I'm deeply grateful for that, I want to emphasize. Um, and I did send a link to the executive director, and I asked her if she could show it to Martin Scorsese, you know, and um, she just wrote back a few weeks later and said, you know, thank you so much for sharing the film. It was really thought provoking, you know. That's it. Wow. Wow. And um, and to your point, I, I remember you saying you, you're uh, we're we're talking about in Sofia Coppola's Lost in Translation, the very opening shot of uh, Scarlett Johansson of her bodied body part of her backside uh and that is that our introduction is the viewer to to the main female character whereas yeah. uh uh bill murray gets the 3d lighting it gets uh gets to have feelings and experience as you called it and um and i I understand what you mean about it. You're not attacking these filmmakers. You're you're saying that there is you're not the booty police. I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not the booty police. Yeah. <laughs> but you're saying that this is the majority of films. This is how the shot design is from the majority of films, and that it has caused us to to be brainwashed to not think that there is another way of looking another way of, of viewing uh and and that there needs to make space right these organizations need to make space for our creativity because there is space in the marketplace for this uh as we are seeing um yeah right uh yes let's um let's talk about how you were in your film, in this documentary film, yeah. and uh, and you you utilize your own films, you utilize yourself yeah. in it, and you talk about your personal yeah. life. And what did I? I assume in your lecture, in the in the talk that you give, that you wouldn't that you didn't incorporate this. This was something that you brought to the documentary. Um, did you always bring your your own personal life and your own personal work into um well i a little bit yeah i mean a little bit i i mean that's my teaching style you know i've taught for feels like millions of years but um i i always have a very sort of personal <laughs> teaching style and i um I guess I follow what the uh, women um, feminists in the 70s said, which is the personal is political. You know, I think what what a lot of us felt as women filmmakers, you know, coming up um, in the 80s and 90s and up until 2015 with Maria Geis and her, you know, groundbreaking action um, is that, well, you know, maybe... I don't know how to schmooze or maybe, oh, my films are too experimental 
or, um, you know, if only I, you know, was uh, more in with the in crowd of the uh, the Hollywood A-list or, you know, like trying to figure out like why you're not getting, you know, more attention or more money or or any money um, when you're obviously getting a lot of acclaim. And, you know, it just was like, you know, there was kind of this weird disconnect. And um, I remember I was at the, uh, I mean, the, my explanation for myself was, I mean, I knew there was a sexist element, of course, but I wasn't really aware because I always thought that, well, it's because my films are so confrontational. And um, I remember when I was at the Women's Media Summit in Provincetown, Massachusetts, um, I think it was the 2017, and it was March, so it was before the eruption of the Me Too movement, but it was after the Maria Geis action. And there people were talking, and I gave my little spiel that I said here earlier today about, uh, you know, how my film Magdalena Virago, which won all these awards, didn't result in a single phone call. And that I thought it was because the film was so kind of radical in form and content. And um, and this woman, you know, stood up and was like, I want you to know, you know, my film went to the Toronto Film Festival. And I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of it, but it was um, it won the audience award at TIFF. Audience award means. Yeah popular everybody loved it and she said i couldn't get arrested either you know that's that phrase they say here you know you couldn't get arrested um no no calls after an audience award so that was also when a light bulb went on in my head and i'm like you know there's discrimination and then there's like unbelievable (laughs) discrimination which is what we were facing as women until very very recently it's gotten better we're not at we're not at 50 50 but um you know what i lost track of your question somehow i'm i I, i'm veering around well i'd I'd like to uh to uh particularly for our members to go through uh, the maria geis uh action and can you talk about that Yes, I'll I'll talk about it briefly. It's um it was uh Maria Geis is one of the co-producers of Brainwash and she's also one of the interviewees and she also went to the UCLA Film School and she had a film that got quite a bit of attention and then she couldn't get any work and you know she kept you know we all sort of had the same experience. Um you know people responded to it in different ways. And um, she had finally got s- sort of the idea to as- assemble the actual statistics um, on gender uh, hiring, which she took to the ACLU, excuse me, the ACLU, which is the, um, for those people abroad, it's it's like the big, um, uh, civil liberties union they're a very very powerful organization in the united states and the aclu um looked at the statistics and went wow this is serious this is illegal discrimination and the aclu took 
the statistics over to, I mean, they did also a lot more interviews and, you know, they accumulate a lot of material proving the severe, severe sex discrimination. And they took it to the U.S. federal government, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. What we would have liked, what would have been great is if the EEOC had actually sued the studios in public, which would have made the whole proceedings public, but they didn't do that. And we wonder why. But anyway, they went into secret settlement negotiations with the studios. Mm-hmm. And to this day, we don't know what went down in these secret negotiations, but the uh, general understanding is that they were threatened with hundreds of millions of dollars in fines if they didn't shape up their hiring practices. And so you saw starting in, let's say, you know, 2016, 2017, you started seeing more women getting hired. You know, Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird came out in 2017. And all of that, all of that Maria Geis action, um, you know, 2021, Chloe Zhao won the Academy Award. All of those things were a direct result of this. EEOC action. We really owe a debt of gratitude to Maria Geis for jumpstarting that. And um, yeah, so that's, I mean, that's a short form, you know, it's uh, obviously there were people all along the way. I just want to acknowledge the fighters all along the way, you know, for women's rights in film and stuff that, that's, that never said for whatever reason, never actually resulted in a shift until um like around the the 2015 2016 and then we had the me too movement which i feel you know also owed quite a debt of gratitude to the eeoc mm-hmm. thing because it 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 created a, a sort of a a groundwork in a way um so those two things together the me too and the EEOC action did start to shift the landscape, although we have a long way to go, of course. It it is quite a lot of energy, quite a lot of of your time, your energy, your emotions to be battling against this. It has resulted in you creating this documentary, Brainwashed. And... I want to, um, oh, let me take these questions first. And then I want to to understand how do you parcel out working on this, supporting, you know, gender equity uh, in the film industry and doing your own creative work. And that goes into dismantling um, this lens that we've lived under. Um, Gemma has asked, how much of a factor does ageism play into all of this? Oh, I think I think it's huge. And um, although men are also subjected to ageism, of course, um, but women are subjected to it, you know, a zillion times more. I think we all know this. I mean, we, as a matter of fact, we had a whole section on age in the in the film. Um, showing, you know, the the age disparity between female leads and male leads, which, 
you know, you, you, it almost goes without saying, you know, you're, you, you never see the opposite unless it's like a comedy or, 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 you know, some quirky weird thing. Right. Um, or sex worker, like, um, luck uh, to you, Leo. good luck to Leo Grand. Right. So she's older, but it's, it's a sex worker situation. I mean, normally you're not going to see a couple like that. Um, so that's on screen women are subjected to severe, severe age discrimination, severe. Um, and of course, behind the scene, it's the same. Well, first of all, I mean, no women at all practically got to uh, direct. And certainly, you know, if you think about all these, these male, revered male directors, you know, whether it's starting, you know, Fellini and Bergman and, you know, down to, you know, or Clint Eastwood, Tarantino, it doesn't matter. You know, they can, uh, David Cronenberg, you know, mm. these people are revered as, and I'm not saying they're not good filmmakers, <laughs> But they, there's a, you know, there's, it wouldn't occur to anyone to say like, oh, well, you know, Cronenberg now he's really over the hill, you know, he shouldn't be given another thing. And, and none of these thoughts anyway are conscious. It's just like, he looks like a director, but, you know, women just, you know, I mean, I, I, I feel like you could have made a series on this. Uh, yeah. 20 part series on this. I could feel that there was also potentially uh, another section about race in there. Yeah. You certainly addressed it with um, the power dynamic uh, in what was the name of that F? My phone wants to talk to me. Um, uh, and I, I certainly would have appreciated having uh, having even more of that. And I understand, uh, but but I could feel that that it was there, and there there was much more. There, it's it's so rich. This documentary is so rich, folks. There is so much to unpack, and uh, and I saw it twice uh, with the screener I had, and I could watch it many more times. Uh, and and uh, yeah it's it, there's just so much information that has informed me um uh, personally professionally and creatively um i there's another question you have here how long did it take uh i am assuming it means how long did it take to make the documentary and when did you know it was complete that's an interesting one to know yeah um well you know, if you if you count um, the fact that this was a lecture that I gave to my students over probably <laughs> maybe 20 years or something, um, but but that's not really part of making the film. But let's say, you know, I had this lecture that I gave to my students. OK, and then I started giving it around the world. Um, that was like uh, 2018, 2019. And then the idea to make it into a feature film um, and the Disney's uh, did come in to support the film. That's a um, big shout out of thanks to Tim Disney, Abigail Disney and Susan Disney Lord for financing this project. Um, from the time that we sort of officially went into production on the film till the Sundance uh, premiere, um, 
Well, I would say about two and a half years of really intensive work, something, something around there. Yeah. That's if you, you know, if you don't include the 20 years of preparation. <laughs> so to speak. Right. And when did, when did we think that it was done? I mean, the, the main problem, like you just said, Marisa, is that, you know, there were so many side streets you could go down. Ageism was one of them. Um, way gay male characters are shot like women was one of them. Um, the whole question of race. Um, I just was hoping that, you know, someone else would, you know, pick up perhaps, you know, that those threads. We could not make a five hour. I mean, we I guess we could have made a five hour movie, but we wanted to have it be, you know, something that was, you know, sort of manageable as a single feature documentary that could at least start the conversation. So, you know, we did not feel like this film is the last word. Um, we and we feel that it 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 should be um, a starting point for a conversation. And, and it does bring up a lot of points that we don't go into detail on. So we tried to keep it pretty. And the editor really helped me with this because I'm like, well, can't we put in this? And can't we put in this? And can't we put in this? And, you know, and she was like, well, you know, we got to sort of stay on on point, you know, to make a very powerful um work that is kind of a manageable length, you know? Right. So... Yeah, so hopefully the film is a is a yeah, is it's a starting point for for more. I mean, you know, we we don't feel it's the last word or anything like and that. And I I can feel that there there are others who will pick up the mantle uh and go with it. Uh uh Mary Fox and uh MS uh, O'Leary have have two kind of very similar questions or it's going through the same pathway. Mary asks, has there been any backlash? And then Emma asks, were you disappointed with that lackluster response? Do you think things are changing? Well, I wouldn't say there was a lackluster response. I would say there was a huge response. Um, um, there there's been a huge response it's it hasn't all been positive there has been yeah there was backlash um i mean i spoke a little bit like about the dga um the basically what what we found is you know the positive reviews and the the you know the fact that it's you know it's still showing now for example you know uh here um at this great festival and um it's showing all around the world it's sold all around the world and i'm still doing you know zoom talks and interviews and so on it just uh, uh it just opened in um in france and germany on arte um and there was a huge uh rave review in le monde um, just a couple of weeks ago. So we've had a lot of fantastic response. So I, I want to really emphasize that. Um, but we've also been attacked and the attacks, interestingly, um, to come back to something I said earlier, which is like, no one can actually attack the argument that I'm making because it's watertight. So instead of attacking that, which they really can't do, they attack me personally. That's what I found in in many of the 
uh, unfriendly reviews, it will be like, you know, Nina includes her own films. What a narcissist, you know, or like um, the uh, that's a that's a big complaint. Like I, I actually read in print um, a, a number of people said, you know, she only shows her own films as the good examples. I mean, this is simply a lie. Yes. It's wrong. Like, did you see the film or are you just angry and turned it off after 15 minutes and writing whatever you want? Um, so that was a what you know, attacking me as being like narcissistic and you know, promoting myself as the greatest filmmaker better than everybody else, uh, which is utterly untrue. Um, and then the other thing, the other point that people tried to sh uh, you know, um discredit is they said well she took clips out of context okay and this is a hilarious uh, critique of the film because the whole point of the film is to take clips out of context and to show that shot design regardless of context regardless of whether it's a, a horror movie or a western or a comedy or a romance regardless of whether it's the you know 1940s or the 50s or the 60s or the 2021 regardless of context remove the context look at the meta language this is the whole point of the film we prove it. So if you come and say, oh, you didn't, you took it out of context. Yeah, that's what I did. That was the whole point. So the people who, who attacked the film, you know, they didn't really attack the film. <laughs> oh yeah. And then there's, then there's the other attack, which is, you know, like you said this earlier, Nina's the booty police, you know, she's a prude. Someone wrote, she's a prude, you know? And, and again, if you see the film, this is absurd because we give a lot of examples at the end of, of sex scenes. Yes, sex scenes, sex bodies, which are shot in a different kind of way where the woman is not extremely objectified. Including your own films. Including my own films. Yes. In, and is it my personal journey? Yes. <laughs> You know, and am I putting my own body on the line by being in it? Yes, you know, but um, that, that's that's something that I wanted to kind of look at um, there when I mentioned you in it. You're you are putting yourself online. How did you make mm -hmm. that decision? Because that's vulnerable. Yeah, well, it's really. I'm glad you brought that up because I think it's it's really interesting. Um, it seems like, you know, the people who are touched by the film, um, I've, I've heard, you know, that that was, that was a, a, a part that was really important to them that I wasn't just, cause you know, when we showed, when we showed the film, um, like to friends, you know, work in progress along the way, you know, there was, there was one friend who said, you know, you should, you should take yourself out and just be like voiceover, you know, which would be more like the normal essay film you know, and uh, we made a very conscious decision that me as a woman, you know, and having my body on the screen and speaking very personally about my own 
journey as a woman and a filmmaker interwoven with all the rest of the stuff was really, really essential to the whole meaning of the film, you know? And um, it's one woman even told me, like she said, you know, we're talking about Laura Mulvey, whose famous essay is called, you know, visual pleasure in narrative cinema, right? That's the, the seminal 1975 um, Mulvey essay. Um, and this one woman told me, she said, you know, I got visual pleasure from having you on the screen, you know, sitting there in front of those clips and like mediating those clips, like you, you were my, you know, stand in or my whatever, I don't know what to call it. So that, uh, that decision was also, you know, attacked by the people who were upset by the film, um, again, as sort of narcissistic decision you know, how dare she put herself in the, and, and just to show how misogynist that is, you know, it's like, if it just consider, you know, like, uh, I don't know, just David Lynch makes a film about surrealist filmmakers of the past 30 years. And he includes a few clips from his own films. Would anyone, you know, say anything about that? I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. And it just shows how deep this misogyny goes. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you Jules's question here. Uh, and then I'd like to kind of like start to wrap up our discussion. Uh, Jules asked, does it translate in the same way to other crew roles or HR head of departments, HODs, or what's the impact there in terms of this perspective? Well, what we had until very, very recently is pretty much, you know, all predominantly white male um, heterosexual crews at every single level. I mean, when, you know, there's, uh, we, we point that out in the film a, a number of times. It's not just the people in the, in the main positions, but it's like everybody on set. So all all of those sex scenes that that we've all seen, you know, a million of, um, you know, ninety eight percent of those scenes where where a woman is like naked and uh, on 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 set, you know, doing whatever, um, those scenes would would have been surrounded by a huge crew of of all men until very very recently so yeah it absolutely um reinforced the power dynamic uh, on the screen um it reinforced the power dynamic on sets that there has been until very recently almost no diversity in the other positions on set yeah I, I've definitely seen that. Uh, and well, the interesting thing too, is that I start, I have started to see more um, uh, interns come in and the, but the interns are very young, young women who come in, who are allowed to almost step in for a moment and then step away. And uh, I have no, I have not, yet seen them move up in those departments that are predominantly male. Um, I, uh, I'd like to go into, I think my last question if uh, uh, here, and 
Um, so my mother just had cataract surgery. It's part of the reason why I'm here. And cataract surgery, uh, for those of you who might not know, is literally going into your eye and cutting out your old lens and replacing it with a new lens, right? So my question to you, Nina, is how do we as women who work and create in film and television, how do we cut out this internalized male gaze, this lens uh, from not just our own viewing of films, but from our creation of, of our films, of our work. Well, that's, that's really, you know, the million dollar question, um, or should I say billion dollar question? It's, um, to my view, like the most heartbreaking um, part of this whole story, in a way, is that internalized um mechanism where we internalize this way of thinking about ourselves and we find it almost impossible to turn it off and um <clears throat> i do i do feel like the most important first step is illumination and consciousness you know they've they have proven in physics you know i mean i'm not a scientist but i know you know that this idea that if you have a particle and you know you the you put attention on that particle that particle will actually physically change i mean this is a scientific truth you know um so consciousness and awareness does create change. It creates change on an almost DNA level. Like I've heard many times on Brainwashed, um, you know, once you see Brainwashed, you cannot unsee it. You can't go back. You're not going to walk into a film and just have a vague feeling of insecurity and inferiority and not know why you have that feeling because, hey, wasn't there a really strong woman character in the main role? Why do I feel so disempowered, right? And so, so step one, you know, illumination of the mechanism that has, uh, you know, created this internalized way of seeing. Once... Once that happens, I feel like every single person, um, I would I would never want to dictate, you know, what step to take. I would say that allow that consciousness to percolate, allow it to affect your creativity, allow it to bring questions into your mind about how you might want to shoot a scene instead of just shooting on automatic. You know, I had a number of people come up to me um, after screenings, you know, to say like, I'm so embarrassed. I just shot a scene last week, like the cinematographer told me, you know, I just shot a scene last week like that. And I, I wasn't aware I was on autopilot. Right. So, so that, once that autopilot is dismantled, suddenly there's all these ways to maybe shoot the scene. How are you, how are you going to decide, you know? And for me, what I, what I teach in, in my, uh, to my students, what I suggest is to try, and I say this at the end of Brainwash, you know, to try to focus 
inward, instead of focusing outward, instead of looking to let's see what Sophia Coppola did and let's do it like her. Let's see what Spike Lee did and let's do it like him. Let's see, you know, what Tarantino did and let's do it like him. What, what if you honor your own life? It's hard to do. <laughs> honor your own life, your own path your own experience. Each one of us has had, you know, just like every fingerprint is unique. There's no two similar fingerprints where, you know, actually I'll quote James Baldwin because he said a beautiful thing. He said, each of us is unique, irreplaceable, and just passing through. And it is these qualities which define our responsibility. And and I, I just love that quote because he's saying Please like- Please repeat that. Please repeat it. Yeah. James Baldwin. Um, each of us is unique, irreplaceable, and just passing through. And it is these qualities that define our responsibility. So there, there is no one else on earth who's like you. And you, we, us, each one- can bring our own vision, our own experiences. You know, how are you going to shoot a scene? Like someone, someone said, well, what if I'm the cinematographer and I'm on set and it's a sex scene and the director, you know, wants to do the naked body pan, you know, what's, what is something I could say when I'm on set and I'm being asked to do that? You know, do I just start yelling about the male gaze or what, you know? And so one, kind of easy thing that a lot of people will respond to and understand is to say, oh, okay, you want a shot, you know, of the woman like body pan along her naked body. Okay. But whose point of view is that? And the director would be like, oh, well, uh, 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 right. Because whose point of view is it? it's probably just the generic male gaze point of view. And there's nothing within the story that actually supports that point of view. So if the director then would go back to the script and go, well, wait a minute, this was actually, this whole scene was supposed to be the woman's point of view. So you're right. It doesn't really make, even if you just use logic and forget about intuition, it doesn't make logical sense for the camera. Who's, who's, what is the camera seeing? Who is representing, the camera is representing whose point of view? So these are some questions that you can say, like, okay, like, for example, to go back to my film, Magdalena Virago, where I focused only on her face for the sex scenes, you know, the way that I came to that decision was like a, a feeling inside me that I wanted to show what she was feeling and what she was experiencing. Well, how are you gonna show what she's experiencing if you're you know, panning down her leg? So that, I mean, I'm not saying, you know, that's the way to do it. I'm just saying, tune in to what you feel is the truth of a scene. You've written a scene, what's the, what's the truth of that scene? The truth of that scene is, I don't know, right? Mm. You know. And then how would I shoot that truth? What camera position, camera movement, what set design, what sound mm. 
would support the truth of the scene that I uh, want to bring to the world. Yes. And hopefully the answer to that is very, very individual to each person and each scene instead of just being checklist male gaze this is how you shoot and so i'm going to shoot because other people shot like that so i'm just going to shoot the same way thank you nina this nina menkes is the director of brainwashed sex camera power you can watch it at the carry international film festival uh, next week, next Thursday, uh, or, or Thursday, because this podcast is coming out on the same day. Uh, and also, if you can't catch it at the Cary International Film Festival, what are the other ways we could see it, Nina? Well, it is on the BFI um, player uh, streaming. Um, yeah, and uh, it's... Uh, so it should be very accessible to this audience. If it's if people are listening who are in North America, it's streaming very widely on all the regular panel, uh, you know, Amazon Prime and Apple iTunes. Um, it's out on Arte um, in Germany and France. Um, so it shouldn't be too hard to find. And um, if you have any further questions or, um, you know, we are on Instagram at Brainwashed Movie, at Mencus Film. Those are both one words, at Brainwashed Movie, at Mencus Film. Um, please, if you write anything on social media, um, please tag us, let us know. And since it is an independent film um, with, you know, a very small marketing budget, um, uh, you know, if you do spread the word, it really, it really helps uh, get the film out there to more people. So thank you. And Marisa, thank you for an amazing, amazing oh, session yeah. today. Wonderful. For, for all your understanding. I, I really warms my heart and my soul. <laughs> uh, it's life-changing. This documentary is life-changing, guys, especially, yeah, just wonderful. Uh, I'm going to show it to everyone, everyone in my life. Uh, I think it's that yeah. important. Thank you again. Thank you, everyone who's listening. And uh, again, I'm Marisa Roy with WIFT Ireland, Women in Film and Television Ireland. Mm -hmm.